Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The legendary Atlanta trio, the Subsonics, are known for their primitive rock and roll style. Their stripped-down short songs, which usually range from only one to two minutes in length, have gained them international recognition. To that point, the Brazilian label Mandinga Records recently released a compilation of Subsonics covers recorded by various artists from around the world called You Didn't Think We Could Take It, Volume 2. Later this hour, we'll hear from Subsonics drummer Buffy Aguero, bassist Rob Del Bueno, and singer Clay Reed. First, though health experts would disapprove, reading is my favorite form of exercise, and it's a particular delight to talk books with Gail O'Neill, the editor-at-large of Arts ATL, and Bonnie Hilliard, the owner of Brave and Kind Bookshop in Decatur. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Always a pleasure to speak with you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Reading is wonderful every day of the year, but the fall season leading up to the winter holiday seem to be especially busy with publishers' releases. Bunny, do you think that's because of people buying books for holiday gift-giving? I do. I, I believe that. So we, we've been open here about three years, and so What I have learned thus far is that the fall season tends to be chock full of amazing new books published just in time for the holidays. So I I would uh, venture to say that it is a time where we will all hopefully be at home, cozied up and reading and also sharing stories uh, with our family and friends. Indeed. Gail, I know you are not a critic, but having the position you do... No doubt you receive many pitches to review books. Have you been inundated recently? Yes, I have been inundated recently. So it creates a nice pile on my 
let's call it my nightstand book reading list, the aspirational list. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's just a pleasure to know that publishers are getting the works out, the words out of writers across a broad spectrum of Americans. I feel like there's been real intentionality over the last couple of years to be more inclusive about the voices that we promote to the top. And so that's always a pleasure to, to be at a nexus where I can say, hey, have you guys read this or have you heard of this author or, you know, just to explore it for myself. And with that in mind, what are some of your favorite picks? It feels redundant to say Isabel Wilkerson's cast because I feel like everyone has read it or everyone should have read it. But just yesterday, a girlfriend texted me and said, have you read Isabel's new book? And should I read it? A girlfriend said I should read it. I said, yes, this is required reading. The fact that Oprah Winfrey gifted this book to, I think, every senator and every governor and hundreds of legislators says a lot about the importance of the conversation that needs to be happening, not only on a personal level, but on a legislative level. Laws and, and just the way that we interact with one another are primarily determined by personal experience or what we know of other people's experiences. And Isabel's exploration of America's caste system is original, it's intelligent, it's not hyperbolic, and it is just essential reading, I would have to say. And in addition to the importance of the material included for historical, sociological reasons, Isabel Wilkerson's style of writing is so gorgeous that even with nonfiction, there's something poetic about reading her work. You know, Lois, I've heard Isabel say that everything she does, everything she writes is rooted in love. She is a humanist first and foremost. She's beloved wherever she goes around the world. And she believes, she's optimistic about humanity. She is optimistic that our better angels can rise to the top if only we will allow them. I'm reminded of the young poet laureate at President Biden's inauguration, Amanda Gorman, and her final words that we can be the light if only, I, I'll botch up her quote, but that we can be the light if only we can see it, if only we can be it. And I would say that that is Isabel's North Star, that we are the light. We just have to let it shine. Bonnie, did you have a run on demand for Amanda Gorman's book after the inauguration? We absolutely did. I would have to say that is likely our top selling book of 2021, even now. So we, we had many pre-orders for that book before it came out and um, was officially published in September. It is a beautifully illustrated and lovely book that I believe belongs in, in everyone's home and forever library. Uh, her words were so hopeful and we were just so honored to be able to partner and share that with the world. Gail, what are some of your other picks before we go back to Bunny? Rebecca Carroll's Surviving the White Gaze is a memoir. She identifies as African-American, but she is biracial. She was given up for adoption at birth adopted by a white couple, and they raised her in New Hampshire, in rural New Hampshire, where she was the only person of color in her family, only person of color in her neighborhood, and in fact, in her whole town. And at the same time, another graphic memoir, and this is the first time I've read a graphic memoir, and I really enjoyed it, written by a young woman who was given up for adoption in Korea and raised in Stockholm by a Swedish family. 
The memoir is called Palimpsest, Documents from a Korean Adoption. And the author's name is Lisa Woolrim. I do not speak Swedish. So for those of you who know I'm butchering the language, I apologize. I'll just spell her last name, S-J-O-B-L-O-M. These two memoirs really illuminated so many blind spots for me, Lois. For one, the idea of transracial adoption and how complicated it can be for the child who doesn't fit in to the larger community. The reluctance that many adoptees feel to express any curiosity about their primary families or their birth families for fear that it'll be misconstrued as disloyalty or ingratitude to their adoptive parents, whom of course they love. The uncharted territory that very, very young people have to navigate really in solitude because their parents, the adoptive parents, for all of their goodwill and love for the children, haven't walked that particular path. So, you know, we, we just don't know what we don't know. And so parents are kind of are in a limbo while their children are navigating this really rocky road. And then the most important point for me was that most of my reading to this point in my life about adoption has been written by people who have adopted children, as opposed to written by people who are adoptees or people who gave up children for adoption. So it just exploded my notions about, about what adoption is, what all of the moving parts are, and the complications for all, really for the, for the adoptees, in particular adoptees in transracial adoptions. Both beautiful, beautiful memoirs. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with bookstore owner Bunny Hilliard and journalist Gail O'Neill about their favorite fall reads. Bunny, I know that part of the reason you wanted to open a shop was because you loved to read as a child. You enjoyed reading stories by Judy Bloom, but you didn't see children or young people who looked like yourself in any of those books. So your shop is dedicated to carrying stories with a diverse range of characters. Absolutely, uh, and especially as I became a mother myself and I started to peruse the shelves for titles and books and stories to share with my own children. I did at that time find it difficult to find stories where the faces and the stories resonated with my children and looked like them. Um, And so it was my goal to open a space where families of all colors and nationalities and religions and cultures could come in and see themselves on the shelves, not as a special section in the store, but this is our store. It is always my delight to to see families come in and and find uh, books that really resonate and speak to them and and their families. What are some of those books that are among your personal favorites as well? I would say Renee Watson's How to Make Sunshine. Um, She has since uh, released a second book about Ryan Hart called Ways to Grow Love. And so it's the continuation of her story, but it is very comparable to Judy Bloom in its wit and delight and stories of just what you experience as an eight-year-old riding her bike and making new friends and attempting to face some of the challenges that that children face in life and in school. And I think 
you know, for children of color to see themselves in books in an affirming way. It just really speaks to their esteem and uh, points them in a direction of hope and knowing their place in the world. And in addition for the importance of children to see people like themselves in stories, I would imagine it's also important to children of color to have a wider selection of fiction to turn to. Gail, I'm reminded of the first time I spoke with an author whose writing we both enjoyed, Lisa Cross-Smith. Oh, I'm so glad you brought her up, Lois, yes. (laughs) And she said when she was a kid, and she wanted to read books that had people who looked like her, she said it was a biography of Harriet Tubman, or Dr. Martin Luther King. Very important to read, but I'm quoting Lisa here saying, but I just wanted to read books. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so she has written fiction in which African American characters are the protagonists. You don't necessarily know that at the beginning of the story. How do we incorporate that into the importance of what we're discussing about children and adults seeing themselves in books? Or, Bunny, I love the way you expressed it, see yourself on the shelf. You know, Lois, one of the books on my to-read list is John McWhorters. He is a linguist and a professor at Columbia University. He wrote a book called Woke Racism, how a new religion has betrayed black America. And what he posits is that the identity politics that has shoehorned African-Americans into thinking of themselves as simply victims of a larger system does a disservice, not only to their humanity, but to to our imaginations. I'm including myself in this group. Lisa is one of these authors who has broken free of that mold. And unfortunately publishing like theater and like television and entertainment in general, generally will cater to the masses. And right now the masses are asking for what's the most woke material? What's the most racially sensitive material? What's the most blah, blah, blah. But this is at the, at the expense of our humanity of what draws us together, what makes what, what we have in common as human beings, our majesty, if you will. So I love the fact that Lisa has gone against the grain you don't necessarily know the races of her of her characters, and it really does not matter. What matters is that she's a beautiful storyteller. As Lisa says, she is. She loves things that are cozy. She loves her readers to feel comforted, and that's how you feel when you read her novels. She has a new one coming out next year, Half Blown Rose, about a woman who is cheated on by her husband. She escapes to Paris. Starts. I think she starts either taking classes in Paris or teaching in Paris and then finds a young lover. What is not to love about that story? The protagonist <laughs> happens to be African-American, but this has nothing to do with the story that, that unfolds. It sounds amazing. Yes. It's going to be next on my list. Yes, half-blown rose. And Bunny, I have to ask you, I love the name of your bookshop. How did you come to Brave and Kind? Uh, well, to be quite honest, I, I started to think about after, <laughs> I'll say after the election of 2016, and, <laughs> Um, you know, how I could 
do something that felt very much in the opposite direction of what I felt like was happening in the world. Um, and as I started to kind of turn a literal page in my life, I sent both, to, both of my kiddos off to school. I started to consider, you know, what would I do if I thought I could not fail? I wanted to do something brave and kind for myself, for my family and for my community. And it felt like the, the right time to open this space where we could share stories that might inspire people to do something brave and oh, kind. That's beautiful, Bunny. Brava. Gail, I see two of the books on your list certainly have unifying things, unifying appeal. One being a gorgeous art book, David Driscoll icons of nature and history and food is essential <laughs> to all cultures so unique eats and eateries is another but first let's talk about the exquisite art of david driscoll i'm looking at this beautiful coffee table book it was the exhibition catalog that the high museum published along with i believe rizzoli in honor of, of Dr. Driscoll's retrospect, not a retrospective, but it was a really tightly curated show of his work at the High Museum earlier this year. In fact, it opened on February 6th, my birthday, and Dr. Driscoll was supposed to have been there. It would have been in celebration of his 90th year, but he passed away from the coronavirus, complications from the coronavirus in 2020. So unfortunately, he was not there. But Lois, you talk about a man who was so beloved. He was a scholar, an artist, a curator, an educator. I'm looking at this beautiful coffee table book right now and just the saturated colors and his, his optimistic palette puts a smile on my face. And then when you explore the book and you read essays that were written by his peers and Michael Rooks, the High Museum's curator of modern art, talking about Dr. Driscoll's personal journey, about their personal relationships with him, why he was so important in the world, what an important mentor that he was to so many people across the world and certainly in Atlanta's arts and culture community. And then when you look at his paintings, Lois, and you consider, I'll give you a little bit of his background. He was born to sharecroppers. Dr. Driscoll is African-American. He was born to sharecroppers in Eatonton, Georgia in 1931. That's Alice Walker's hometown. This is a man who never let the prevailing laws and restrictions curtail his human potential as an artist and who he was meant to be. So there's that. And then I think if a man like that was able to overcome the circumstances and not lose hope in 1931 in Jim Crow, Georgia, who are we to lose hope in the face of a pandemic when we have science on our side and, and knowledge on our side? That's number one. And the other thing is that Dr. Driscoll had a painting studio. He had a studio home in Maine, a vacation home in Maine. And he loved painting and repainting pine trees. And since I've been looking at his pine trees, they forced me to reconsider the pine trees that surround me at my home here in Georgia. And as I look at them sway, I just think about how nature has a way of recalibrating herself, no matter what befalls her, whether it's drought, famine, fire, and how she just knows that she's programmed to adapt, endure, and survive. And we too are part of that natural world. So I figure if the pine tree can do it, we can do it, and we will do it. And I got all of that from Dr. Driscoll's beautiful book. Arts and culture writer Gail O'Neill 
and Bonnie Hilliard, the owner of Brave and Kind Bookshop in Decatur. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Let's return now to my conversation with Bunny Hilliard, the owner of Brave and Kind Bookshop in Decatur, and journalist Gail O'Neill. Here, Hilliard shares her love for art and picture books. When I choose books for the store, I am often drawn in by the beautiful and bold uh, colors and illustration. And I see them as art. I see them as additions to uh, families' homes in a way that they would want to display them and share them. And I could certainly see them also as, although not intended to be coffee table books, books that you would want to have in your line of vision just because of the, of the beauty of the illustrations and the, of course the stories inside and it would just kind of from the outside in pique your interest to want to to know more. That includes Jerry Pinckney who I have admired for a long time and a lot of his beautiful illustrations and works and stories. One of my most favorite is a retelling of sorts of, of The Little Mermaid and just a, a beautiful young girl on the front cover and she's bursting out of the water and she's wearing a flower crown and it just a watercolor just pulls you in and it's just so so delightful. What are some others you would recommend? Stacy Abrams has penned her first picture book. It's entitled Stacy's Extraordinary Words. Uh, written by the iconic voting rights advocate, Stacey Abrams, who of course is near and dear to our heart. She's definitely a hometown hero. Again, I really love the bold and beautiful illustrations in this new picture book, and it's illustrated by Kit Thomas. Stacey's Extraordinary Words is about a little girl who is Stacy, who loves words and finds delight and revels in them. She loves funny words and silly words complex and big words. She revels in words like dither and persnickety and they, uh, they tickle her and, and me as well. And she finds solace in them. But when her teacher chooses her to compete in a local spelling bee, she finds herself less excited than she thought she'd be needing to find the courage to speak up. And so, you know, I love this book because Stacy, as well as the readers, find out how powerful our words are. I think that children's book 
is set to release on December 28th. That's right. Not that that date isn't seared into my mind. <laughs> Absolutely. Gail, let's eat. Why not? <laughs> my favorite activity. <laughs> Amanda Plum's beautiful, it's a travelogue for foodies in, across Metro Atlanta. It's called Unique Eats and Eateries. Anybody who's a StoryCorps listener and who has recorded in the StoryCorps booth while they were at WABE would remember Amanda because she was the coordinator and she was the sound engineer who would sit in that booth and make sure sound levels were okay, sometimes prompt questions. She's just a wonderful storyteller and reporter. But she cast her eye on food, which is her primary love. Uh, she says cooking is the sixth love language. She's Italian-American, so that's bona fides right there. She grew up playing museum and restaurant as a child. I've never heard those two go before go together before. <laughs> and she dedicates the book to her Aunt Patsy, a woman who Aunt Patsy passed away last year. And Amanda describes her as a woman who would literally moan with delight and exclaim, this is the best thing I have ever eaten in my entire life. And Aunt Patsy did that pretty much every day. So... Amanda's love for food just comes through and her love for chefs as well. And she's not a snob. So whether she's dining in a five-star restaurant or a hole in the wall or a little taqueria, she gives the same respect to the preparation, to the people who are preparing the meals, her acknowledgement of the loving hands and what it takes to do it. She goes into the backstory, the unlikely backstories, like there's a restaurateur in Atlanta who used to be a K-pop star in Korea. And there's a former professor who had to start selling burritos out of a truck in order to make ends meet. And he wanted to just, you know, sticking with the burrito game. And then the chefs that she introduced, this is really lovely, Lois. How many times have you spoken to a chef? And what they say is that with all of their formal training, their first love came from being at their grandmother's side in the kitchen. Steve Satterfield at Miller Union told me this years ago. He said his grandmother was a general in the kitchen in, I believe, Savannah, Georgia. Nobody was allowed beyond her DMZ, her demilitarized zone, which I understand because I'm the same way in my kitchen. But for some reason, Steve, as a little boy, was able to cross that zone and she let him learn at her apron strings, literally. And he says, everything I do now, that started with my grandmother. And many of these stories repeat themselves in Amanda's beautiful book. And then she also reminds us that Restaurants are as critical to a city's vitality, its cultural vitality, as any museum, opera, theater company, or ballet, and that it's up to us to support them, that we have to be good patrons, meaning we have to tip well, we have to treat our servers well, especially now as we're coming out of this pandemic and many restaurants are short-staffed. We have to be patient if the food doesn't sail out as quickly as it used to, if our server is stressed, if they're being pulled in a million different directions, and we just have to support them by word of mouth. So Amanda's my kind of girl. I imagine if I sat with her family, they'd be the type who'd be serving me lunch saying, what do you want for dinner? And I would know exactly what I want for dinner. Leftovers of what we're having right now. Yes. <laughs> Bunny, what are some of the children's books the illustrated books, the young adult books that especially excite you for this season? I am super excited to share the debut of Tiffany Jackson, who is usually a young adult writer and has written many New York Times best-selling books, has 
forayed into the world of picture books and released the most beautiful, quirky, and delightful book entitled Santa in the City. Um, it's about a little girl's belief in Santa that is restored. It's an ode to the magic of Christmas, which we are swiftly coming upon. I truly believe it's a holiday gift that families will enjoy for years to come. It is about Deja, and she is worried that Santa might not be able to visit her after all. She's a city kid, born and raised in Brooklyn, and lives in an apartment, as many New Yorkers do. So she doesn't have a chimney for him to come down. She says none of the parking spots on her block could fit a sleigh, let alone <laughs> eight reindeer. And so with a little help from her family, her mom, and her community, and Santa himself, Deja discovers that the Christmas spirit is alive and well in her city. And so uh, it gives many uh, beautifully illustrated nods to life in the city. There is a stop at a bodega. There is, uh, you can see the, the taxis and them crowding the streets in New York and wondering for yourself, kind of how, how does Santa make his way through a space like this? And so I think it just speaks to the magic of Christmas and some of the questions that come along the way as our kids are getting uh, older and asking these questions. It's funny and fun. And so really looking forward to sharing Santa in the City by Tiffany Jackson. And another book recently uh, released by Kashan Thompson, who is the creator of the phrase, the term, the proclamation of Black Girl Magic, has released a new installment in the Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls. This is the fourth installment. So they have books that are Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls 1 and 2. There was one recently released or last year called Rebel Girls Immigrant Stories. And this year they have released Black Girl Magic. It's a hundred barrier-breaking Black women and girls and include such icons as Ava DuVernay and Stacey Abrams and uh, Naomi Osaka and many others who will speak to our generation currently and generations to come and, and parents alike. I really enjoy sharing books that I think are just as happy and hopeful for children and inspiring for the grownups who read with them and to them as well. <laughs> Do you carry the book Baby Feminist? We do. We do carry the book Baby Feminist. I cannot tell you how many times I've given that as a gift. It's one of my favorite baby gifts to give. Gail, if you're not familiar with it, again, covering several icons, you see Judge Sonia Sotomayor. And it will say on the left, before she was appointed to serve on the Supreme Court, Judge Sonia Sotomayor was a baby. And you see a little baby version. And it goes on with Frida Kahlo and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it, it's just so marvelous to find this commonality and also think about reading this to a very young child who can see, hmm, there are a lot of great baby girls who grow into very high achieving women. And you know, Lois, what a wonderful reminder to adults too we look to icons and think, oh, I could never be like them. And this is the problem with iconography is that it elevates people like Dr. King and Gandhi and, and Mother Teresa. 
to where they seem to be out of our stratosphere, but they're not. They are just like us. So they were babies. They were babies. <laughs> and then they believed in Santa or they, you know, spun a dreidel. Gandhi. Right, right. Lois, I'm dying to know. You have a new grandson, Max, your first and yes. only. What are you dying to read to Max? I guess I know the answer now, but when he is able to sit in your lap and are you reading to him already? He's or? four months old now. And a friend had given me Yiddish for babies. And of course, I had to show that to Max. It's very funny. I very much look forward to reading to him the Streganona books. The author is Tony DiPaolo. And the books are a series about a character named Streganona. And she is a good witch, an Italian witch. But she works magic in the best ways. I also loved reading a series to our kids about a little badger, Francis, and bread and jam for Francis. There's a whole Francis series. Again, speaking to universal appeal, when characters are little animals, one is able to transcend a great deal in differences, and yet the narratives can have elements that still point out what it is to be othered. So thank you for asking. I think we're going to have a volume two edition of this discussion. But before we go, Gail, I know you had one last book by an author whose recent novel I just love. And she's Atlanta-based. Anjali and Jetty. She wrote The Parted Earth. And you have a work of nonfiction that you're recommending of Anjali and Jetty. Anjali managed to have two books published back to back in 20 and 21 after 11 years, and she's very open about this, of rejections from publishers. So she is an example of, you know, can do spirit, don't give up, just believe in yourself. And her book of essays, Southbound, Essays on Identity, Inheritance, and Social Change is essential reading for anyone who's trying to understand what it means to be othered. So to give you a little background, Anjali's mother is European. Her father is Indian. She was born and raised in the U.S. She's constantly being asked, what are you? And, you know, where are you from? As if she is not American. And so the idea of a very young person trying to reconcile this man-made construct of race and to claim a racial identity when she doesn't even know what it means is really very, very sobering for the adult reader. And so Southbound is this collection of essays about her journey. She's just extraordinary. She's beloved. She's a college professor. She talks about how much she learns from her students, how fearless they are in their storytelling and how they're willing to just break old paradigms and be completely free. So um, yeah, Southbound, Essays on Identity, Inheritance, and Social Change by Anjali and Jetty. What a wonderful place for me to wrap up. Arts and culture writer and journalist Gail O'Neill. She was joined by Bunny Hilliard, the owner of Brave and Kind Bookshop in Decatur. 
you can find their fall reading recommendation list on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll visit with the legendary Atlanta trio Subsonics. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. The Subsonics, a legendary Atlanta trio, is known for their primitive rock and roll style. Their stripped-down songs, which usually range from about one to two minutes in length, have gained them international recognition. Brazilian label Mandinga Records recently released a compilation of subsonic covers recorded by various artists from around the world called You Didn't Think We Could Take It, Volume 2. Subsonic's drummer Buffy Aguero, bassist Rob Del Bueno, and singer Clave Reed join us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hello, and thank you. Hello. Hi, thanks. We're so excited to be here. Yeah, great to have you. Now, you've been together for a long time, Buffy and Clay almost 30 years, and Rob almost 20 Many bands don't make it more than a few years together. What's the secret to your longevity? Uh, disturbance, I guess. A kind of a... <laughs> <laughs> I think the secret is we're all getting deafer, so we can't fight as much. <laughs> I think the secret is, is that there really is no secret. You know, we never have the constraints of big time show business. So we're doing what we want all the time. Well, and... We love what we do and we love each other. I mean, that's a big part of it, you know? As you get older, you know, you get a better sense of what's important, really important, and what's not. Yeah, I agree with that. I have a tremendous, tremendous amount of respect for Robin Clay. Like, there are people in my life that I really love. I love being around. I think they're some of the smartest, most creative, talented people I've ever met. So it isn't even really about like, how do you stay together? Like in my mind, it's more about how do I spend more time with these people? How can I do more projects with these people that I love and want in my life all the time? You know? Sounds good. How did you originally meet? In ways that are so uninteresting, we usually lie about them. Well, <laughs> lie away. It involved a dentist visit and cavities, tooth extractions, uh, broken teeth and microphones and things like Seriously? that. Seriously? A uh, lot of Novocaine. A lot of Novocaine. <laughs> oh, not even the nitrous oxide. Well, you know, we're tough. We like to be conscious. Oh, okay. We that is important, especially when you're trying <laughs> to make music together. The story is... Uh, I had broken a tooth on a microphone because I have all these little things I do, you know, and some of them involve breaking teeth on microphones. I was at the waiting room at the dentist's office. Buffy was in the waiting room to get her teeth clean. You know, as you do, you're bored, you strike up a conversation. 
<laughs> I, you know, I, one thing leads to another. Buffy had, I guess, quote unquote, an audition, sort of like a job interview, I guess, and um, and got the job. And it was uh, April 1st that we initially had the job interview. May 1st, I think, was our first show. practice you know about five days a week for the whole month yeah yeah i remember at that time i feel like we were playing like two shows a day or some crazy amount like we did at times we would play two shows a day yeah yeah we we played like we took every show would you say that your creative approach or songwriting process has evolved over the years Oh, sure. Everything evolves. You know, I don't get too analytical about these things. I don't want to jinx it. I think we fight less, which is helpful, mm -hmm. because I think the first, uh, like, probably Rob, Rob, you probably have a lot to do with this. Like, I feel like now, like, it's a much more, it's a less combative process, which I think makes the music a little better because it's easier, like a seamless flow now. <laughs> you finish each other's musical sentences, so to speak. I think so, yeah. That's a good thing. Some say you have a New York vibe and sound. Are listeners surprised to find out you're from the South? Yeah, sometimes, like, especially when we were first 10 years or so. But the world's changed a lot over the last 30 years. You know, things are a lot more egalitarian geographically, and musical tastes are a lot more egalitarian. Sure. I remember the first time that I met the Subsonics prior to playing with them. I was in another band, and they came over to Alabama to play a show. And, uh, boy, I thought these guys were from New York uh, when I first saw them, for sure. He means we, we had rats coming out of the band. It's probably what it was. <laughs> Rob, you've been with Buffy and Clay for almost two decades now, but they had a 10-year head start. What was it like for you collaborating with bandmates that already had that long history? Yeah, well, of course, I'm still the new guy, which is uh, a great sort of position to have, even if it is 20 years old. I had known and met Buffy and Clay prior because our bands at the time had played, you know, many shows together and toured together. You know, being from the Southeast, we tended to want to stick together, particularly when we were you know, out in the middle of nowhere, say in central United States, us Southerners had to stick together. So I had, you know, gotten to know them okay, but even still joining the band, which was kind of a bit of a gradual project. I think they had a conflict with a bass player, but already had a tour booked and they needed somebody to fill in on the tour. And, you know, there was definitely still a learning curve. The dynamic is certainly different than with others, <laughs> as every band is gonna have a unique sort of dynamic. But it didn't take long to adjust, I think, and it's actually worked out really well, like Buffy was saying. Yeah, 20 years would attest to that. 
I loved reading one critic's remark about your songs as mid-tempo tunes, sometimes laconic, sometimes lurching, good for nursing a hangover or a third drink. often focus on marginal characters or shadowy protagonists. Where do you get your inspiration? Well, you know, uh, I've met a lot of interesting people and had a pretty interesting life. And, you know, if you go back to, I don't know, Shakespeare or the Bible, the, the interesting stories are the stories where bad things happen to people with problems. Those are the interesting stories. Those are, you know, those are the compelling people. These are the people, I guess, that I, in some form or fashion, gravitate towards me or I gravitate towards them or both. That's just the way it's happened, you know? Well, one thing I just want to add that I definitely feel like when we were talking about being from the South, sometimes I feel like when you're you know, a different person or a weird person in the South. Um, it's almost like being a homing beacon for good and bad, but I definitely feel like you attract people that are weirdos like you. So in some ways I feel like weirdos are our tribe and that's part of why we end up like the island of misfit toys around us because I feel like we've always kind of flown our weirdo flag pretty high. All right. Buffy. You seem a rarity in that you play your drums from a standing position. Why? Well, I mean, Mo Tucker is one of my idols. She played standing up. Um, I like a lot of rockabilly drummers that play that way. And it just looks cool. It looks very cool. And, you know, think about marimbas or think about the symphony orchestra. Those guys stand and there's something very powerful about bringing your sticks down on a drum when you're standing because it looks like you're putting all your weight on it. Oh, yeah, for sure. It definitely gives you a, it's a different dynamic than sitting down, that's for sure. Yeah. The Brazilian label Mandinga Records recently released their second compilation of artists from around the world playing Subsonics covers. How did you connect with the Brazilian label? Well, they connected with us. It's just a product of modern communication technology, really. Um, and we get a lot of kind of sort of similar type proposals, not specifically tribute records, but a lot of these things don't pan out. Some of them do. So, you know, I would say I, out the gate, I didn't necessarily take it that seriously. But then, you know, this is three years ago that he first got in touch with us. And it's a project he stuck with, which I have uh, a lot of respect for. You know, at best, these kinds of projects dealing with this many different artists from this many different locations, all using different recording processes, 
putting this all together was really a lot of work. And I think for them, a labor of love. So, you know, I have a lot of respect for them going through all this just because they like us. It's something that <laughs> we're not really used to it. Also, what I think is for me, and just speaking for myself, like it's very interesting well, first of all, usually tribute records happen when you're dead. So it's weird to be like, it's like going to your own funeral in a weird way, like to hear what people say about you, you know, um, which it, it was very interesting to hear. Like I found myself every time a new song came in, like dying to listen to it because it's like hearing somebody else's take on this thing that you've made. You know, it's kind of like like doing an art project. Anytime you do an art project and you release it into the world, it becomes not yours. It becomes kind of everybody else's in a weird way. And this was kind of like that. Like it was very interesting hearing what came back. You know, sometimes it was like a completely like faithful rendering that sounded a lot like the original. Sometimes it was just totally different and off the wall. I, I really enjoyed that. That was a really great experience. Oh, that's wonderful. When they released the first compilation in 2019, did you know there would be a follow-up? I knew that that was the plan, and I knew they had a lot of other things on standby. Of course, this is all as the pandemic was happening, which was a, an additional challenge to this project for them. Brazil was especially hard hit. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So this was, um, you know, all happening under great duress. Oh. I saw that Kid Congo, who has a history with some legendary bands like Nick Cave and the Cramps, plays on this compilation. Were you previous fans of his work? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And what was it like to listen to him cover? Well, you know, it's pretty awe-inspiring. I, you know, somebody that has such a long and storied history and uh, has done many cool things. I mean, Kid, we've played with Kid's bands over the years, like Knoxville Girls, the Monkey Birds, uh, Congo Norvell. Did I say that right? I can't remember. Yeah. I think we've all done tours and played shows with them over the years. So he's just such a cool person. Like just being around him, being involved with him is such an honor. So Buffy, that wasn't like going to your funeral. That was like going to a surprise birthday <laughs> party, I bet. Yeah, maybe a little of both, I think. <laughs> <laughs> You have a show coming up. Will this be the first time you've played in person since the beginning of the pandemic? Yeah, it'll be the first time we've played in person since November of uh, 2019. Yeah, wow. Mexico City was our last show. Oh, how exciting. Well, I'm sure it will be fantastic for you to be in person on the stage again for you and your fans. And thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you very much. It was an honor. Thank you for having us, Louis. Yeah, thank you so much. Subsonics drummer Buffy Aguero, bassist Rob Del Bueno, 
and singer Clay Reed. Their first show in two years is happening this Friday, November 12th at the Earl. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, tomorrow at 11 a.m., the star and filmmaker behind No Time to Waste, the urgent mission of Betty Reed Soskin, plus a look inside the High Museum's Picturing the South Project. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.